listening to Prize Fighting Kangaroo, a podcast about culture and cinema based in the Valley of the Sun. I'm one of your hosts, Ashley Naftal. And I'm the other host, Amy Young. And this year, uh, we've been a little focused uh, on our second year of the Prize Fighting Kangaroo podcast. We've been focused uh, on directors. And today we're going to continue that uh, by talking about Mr. Quentin Tarantino. But before we hop on the QT train, how you been, Amy? It's been a little while. You know, I'm good right now, Ashley, because I just got back from vacation. I actually had a vacation for 10 whole days. I lounged around uh, on oh, Lake damn. Erie, beautiful Lake Erie, in this old kind of beachy biker town uh, right on the lake. Uh, saw a lot of old friends. We kind of all convened at this uh, lake cottage. Um and, you know, hung out, caught up. Uh, now, I'm embarrassed I don't know this, this, this question, but are there any lake monsters in Lake Erie? Uh, I feel cryptozoologically I, I should know this, but... I don't think that there is, like, a, either a mythological or uh, any particular monster. But it's called uh, Erie. It's in the name. Only one-y. Boom. Not... Eerie. <laughs> <laughs> they should put it in a second lake right next to that one. That the, the two E lake. <laughs> and then someone's in the regular Lake Erie, or they think they are, but they're actually in Lake Erie. And then someone points it out, and then something bad happens right when they realize, "Whoa, we're in the wrong lake." Exactly. You it's got like, in the wrong lake. So you want the Scooby Doo Lake? That's that's to the right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, this is just like the, oh, we're going to eat like bad hot dog by the lake lake. Right. How are you? Uh, good. Uh, came back from California with my family. It was Whoa, my dad's. you went on vacation too. Yeah, my dad's like 81st birthday. Um, nice. He's very cheap, so he doesn't put on the AC <laughs> at all, ever. So I went from Arizona, where it was blindingly hot, but you have AC, to San Diego, which is nice and beautiful until you get inside his house, which is blindingly hot and humid because <laughs> there's no fucking AC. Can you... Like, do you try to sneak it? Like, my grandfather was also really cheap. Uh, so we would, he, he didn't believe in paying money to go to restaurants for dinner. And then so he would just say things like, restaurants are poison. And just kind of, <laughs> kind of like try to psych you out. You know, like, oh, you don't want to eat that bad poison food. But really it was because he was cheap. So we would just like s- sneak out. Like a whole family would be like, oh, we're just going to go for a free drive. And then we'd go, you know, some restaurant and eat because we didn't want to hear him bitch about it. Uh, could you sneak the air on or anything? No, fam. Like, no, no he, he's in the house all day, every day. So he'd know the second you turn that thing on, he'd be all like, what was that? <laughs> you just know. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like sweating and no, oh, he weird. likes it, right? He's Let like totally dry. And he, and he always like, oh, he, he like goes, oh, let me put on my sweater. Like, like he, as a point of pride, he'll never admit that it's hot. <laughs> he's wearing like never. a scarf. Oh, I'm a little chilly myself. Uh, he's done yeah. that. <laughs> Like, we, we complain about the heat in the past. He'll literally go inside and come back around two layers. Yeah. And we're like, you fucking asshole. Come on. It's Is he hot. close to the beach? Could you, like, jump in the water for some No, it's some... Fulbrook. So, like, oh. you're, like, it's like avocado country. So it's just trees and orchards and the lake. The sea is, like, 40 minutes away. Did you do anything for fun or did you? Nah, I just read and I swam. Uh, okay. The pool was interesting because he he's a bit of a trumper, so he's got like an inflatable mm. Donald Trump pool toy. <laughs> I think that makes you more than a bit of a trumper when you've invested in a Trump yeah, pool toy. Yeah, he's got socks too. Trump he's got socks? Trump socks. 
So I'll just say Trump and has like a little like uh, like a little like wig floof on the top of the hat. <laughs> it is so horrible. Like I looked at him, I'm like, God damn it, why? Did why? you did you get into some Trump fights with no, him? No, no. I, I have a very firm no politics on that bad house. Because uh, it, it's not going anywhere good, right? I just want to be civil. Like he's my dad. Yeah. I wildly disagree with him on everything, but you know, I see him like once a year. Yeah. It's just not worth it. I'm not one of those people who believes like, oh, I need to cancel all my family and friends if they have terrible politics. Some people you can cut out of your life, and some people it's not that easy. Yeah. And also the guy raised me, so I'm like, I'm not going to disown him just because he's like very much on the wrong side of history. <laughs> yeah. But it's like I have a whole lot of respect for him either, so that's a trade-off, you know? Right. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, a lot of people are dealing with that kind of thing right now. I oh, mean, yeah. a lot of people have that we know have... Uh, Trumpers in their family and, uh, you know, varying degrees of uh, relations. You know, some people completely with the cutoff. Some people are trying to trying to have the conversations maybe to, you know, understand right. and sway opinions. So it's really about what makes you what you feel best about doing. That's your dad. I agree. Yeah. It's kind of weird, too, because like, a lot of his viewpoints are actually really like reasonable where he's like, you know, he he acknowledges that global warming is a real problem, and you know, he, like he doesn't deny that at all, or like the fact that corporations are greedy, or like, or the medical industry is out of control. Like he basically agrees with all like the the stack, the talking points that I think people on the left agree with, but his solution to all those problems is Trump, which is so insane to me. Where it's like, yeah. oh, you see what's wrong with this country, <laughs> but you think this other terrible thing is the answer to yeah. What's and I mean, he's country. not alone. That's Trump's base really thinks he's going to help them with these, uh, you know things that humans need uh, you know that are could be really vital into changing lives and you know that's the last thing Trump really cares about so it's sad to see people putting their hope uh, in such a moral <laughs> very true which by the way if you're listening to this podcast right now and you are a, a quote unquote Trump supporter uh, why are you listening to a David Lynchian podcast first of all second of all we yeah. hate you yep we, we just, hate you long time. Yeah, we don't hate Ashley's dad because he raised Ashley, and that's a really great thing. Uh, he's grandfathered in. He's grandfathered in. He might be the only one. I don't have to grandfather anybody in, so there you go. Uh, I'm good there. So yeah, we hate all the rest of yes. you. Yes, uh, jump ship right now. You can eat an entire trash barge <laughs> full of dicks, please. <laughs> Complete with the seagulls that are ooh, feasting on the trash dicks. That's a big bag of dicks. A boat of dicks. Well, moving on from yeah. bags of dicks and wrong side of the history, off to today's auteur on the topic, um, good old QT. Yeah, not to be mistaken for uh, QT, the place where you roll up and get your gas, a variety of snacks. Although I uh, imagine, you know, if Tarantino was, like, if you were to personify QTs as a person, I think QT of a person would actually be a pretty good representation of the place. He's yeah. hyperactive. Yeah. He, he eats a lot of trashy shit. Yeah, and it's still a little He's bit elevated from Circle K, yeah. I think, or 7-Eleven. Exactly. There's a, a, a little more sophistication. Like, that. maybe that puts the suit jacket on the situation, you know? I like that. I yeah. like that. Well, to start with, what if you had to pick one of his films as your favorite, what would it be? Well, uh, I know we're going to talk about the new movie, and mm -hmm. I don't think it was my favorite, but I did like it, and we'll dig into that in a minute because it's a, there's a lot to talk oh, about. Oh, yes, there is. Um, I'm a big Jack. I like Jackie Brown. I could it could be up at the top. I know I I you know I kind of pick and choose. I'm a really big. I like Kill Bill, two. Oh, yeah. 
considerably. And, uh, you know, I also still have a soft spot for reservoir dogs. Um, I don't know if I can pick. Do I have to pick? You don't have to. You, 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 don't, have to, you don't have to do the King Solomon problem here. It's okay. All right. I'll pick by the end. I'll, I'll make myself pick. Those are good choices, uh, though, because yeah. Jack Lee Brown is an amazing film. And is it your favorite? I, I, I would still... It's close. I'd probably pick Inglorious Bastards for my number oh, one. Oh, yeah. I think it, it, the it, acting in that is oh, phenomenal. so great. Yeah. It, it, it's inconsistent in parts, but the parts that work for me, like the, the, um, the whole basement tavern scene where they're playing uh, Guess Who or reopening with Hans Landa in the house, uh, Shoshana's house, there's such an incredible tension in those scenes that I can't think... I can't think of many other instances in his filmography where they crop up to that degree. They're, they're that powerful. Yeah. I was actually just having this conversation with someone about tense tense scenes in a movie, and that's definitely something that would be fun to dig into. Um, and we were specifically talking about the scene uh, in No Country for Old Man, uh, mm-hmm. where he's in the uh, – Javier Bardem is in the, uh, the little country store with the old couple, and you're kind of not sure where oh, that's yeah. going. And I, I – think i actually had a panic attack during that and i'm i'm not so usually so anxiety ridden uh riddled um but i was during that scene and i think you're right like to get to that kind of level of tension that you don't it's not it's not prevalent to me in tarantino movies uh sometimes he creates a little bit of that anxiety um because the conversations are so lengthy yeah. and you're kind of waiting to see where they're going to turn. But uh, it's usually without that kind of tension or fear for me. So very good point. And what's cool about it, too, is like when I, the first time I watched that sequence, like I didn't quite understand why they got given away. Like, like it was subtle enough that the whole where he's gesturing with his fingers, order more beer. Like I didn't catch the first time and that was why. But it still worked, that sequence. Right? I thought it was, it was just very subtly done, like how it just escalated the stakes and things just got worse and worse. The point where after it happens, you're like, how does the movie continue now that this has happened? And it just keeps and, going. And it keeps going, yeah. So, yeah, so that, that one to me is like probably my... I mean, I, I would say of all the rewriting history films he's done lately, that's my favorite. Although a close second would be uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, I mean, I haven't talked to you, I don't think... Since it, since we both no, have seen it, no, no, um, you know, which is why we haven't had an episode for a while. We've been busy vacationing and whatnot. Uh, did you like it? Oh, you I, loved it. Oh, I right? fucking loved it. I saw it opening night, and I was just like, I, I will admit, I was predisposed to liking it because there has yet to be a Tarantino film that I didn't enjoy. I mean, Hateful Eight, I feel like be the closest one where I'm like, eh, like I wasn't, I, I liked it. I wasn't crazy about it. Yeah. But most of his films, just I, I love them. I, I enjoy his sense of style, the choice of the music, soundtracks, the ensembles. Yeah. It, to me, it's like one, he's, he's one of the few American directors, are, him and like Paul Thomas Anderson, where like everything they make is worth watching. And so, yeah, I, I was predisposed to already liking it, but I fucking loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I, now I recall it. seeing your tweets opening weekend, and I saw it later in the weekend. I saw it twice that weekend. Um and I was not disappointed to like to sit through it a second time. You know, people were like, "How are you going to see it again? It's so long." Um, but yeah, I, there were some nuances that I caught, and uh, yeah. So tell me, what did you what did you like best about it? Well, I think to start with, uh, I don't know, this is kind of cliche, but like, I've never been super impressed with like you know, DiCaprio as an actor. 
like, yeah. I, I enjoy him, but he, he always talks to one of those actors where he's like, when you watch him on screen, it's like, look how hard I am working. See me try. Like, you get this, like, he's one of those actors where you see him doing the homework. Yeah, you know, I was also recently having this conversation. I was on vacation, okay? So we talked about <laughs> movies a lot. And uh, I agree. He's, uh, I thought when he first came out in, you know, Basketball Diaries and whatnot, like, he really has something there. But you do sort of feel like, uh, I'm Leo doing this thing where you he doesn't always just lose himself in the character. Uh, the Revenant, maybe, was a, the best example of him actually kind of shedding the Leo That's skin. Um, so I felt like this time uh, he 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 was it was pretty good, you know. I could get into into that character and yeah. not think so much Leo Leo Leo. Yeah. It did. I, I felt I felt like when I was watching that character, it's like it's hard to think of somebody else being Rick Dalton now. Because like like Leo DiCaprio makes him a sympathetic character, but also while a little bit pathetic, and he gives him these little traits. Like the um, the first time I watched it, I didn't pick up on his stutter, but throughout the whole film, like Rick's like when he's not acting, he's constantly getting a little bit choked up and like somewhat inarticulate, and, and just like when you wa- like when I watched it, like, I was just impressed by his range. You could see Leo being playing the actor, playing the actor, playing the character, playing the character. Like there's just so many layers mm-hmm. to what he does. Yeah, he was um, a little inarticulate, and uh, a li- it was a he's a pretty insecure character. Yeah, uh, I thought. Oh, wildly so. Yeah. I mean, there's that part where he's with the the child actress, <laughs> and he's explaining the plot of the novel. And he's like, had a little bit of a breakdown because he realizes it's about him. Right. It was like one of the be- one of my probably my favorite acting moment I've seen in a, a film this year. Wow. I loved it. I, I thought it was just it, w- it was so well done. Yeah, where he got a little bit choked up and yeah, where yeah. you gotta tell like he's he's describing the book, but you can also see how he can see that the narrative of like this broken down guy who's useless. How you you can tell that he thinks that that that's his self conception, right? And you're in a business where that's what you're thinking about all the time, right? How relevant you are, right? Um, even when you're not thinking about it. I mean, I don't think that there's you know what whatever your um, whatever state you are, like Brad Pitt's character. Uh, you know, I definitely feel like he was also concerned with his own relevancy, but he was much more at peace. Uh, he had a little more swagger. Um, he didn't have as much financially and career-wise uh, as Rick, but he was more at peace with himself because he understood his own relevance in that industry is how yeah. I felt, whereas Rick still was a little hopeful. You know, he was like... Oh, I'm neighbors with Polanski, and maybe if I meet people, you know, there's new opportunities for me, and I don't want to do these Italian films, but I'll go and do them. And uh, he still wanted more from, yeah, yeah, you know, his his Hollywood experience, but he kind of knew in that moment that he probably was on his way out, just by nature of what happens in that world. Yeah. Well, so it was kind of poignant. It was very much so, and I think what makes Brad interesting too is his character. Unlike um, Dalton, is like self reliant. Like he's got skills. I mean, if he didn't work anymore, he could probably survive in the wilderness if he had to. You get the sense that he's like he's competent in a lot of ways. Whereas Rick, you get the feeling Rick is just an actor, and if he stopped acting tomorrow, what does he have to fall? What's back he gonna on? do? What's he gonna yeah. do with his life? Yeah, Brad uh, Clint, Cliff. Cliff. Yeah. He's gonna fix a roof. He's going to. Yeah. I mean, he's right. not living beyond his means, you know. Whereas Rick's got that Hollywood Hills home, and you know, 
it, there's always that question of if he loses one thing or one peg comes out of the equation for him, he, he could crumble and not have anything. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, something else I was thinking about with that is that there, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the movie about, um, you know, them being saviors in the end and being heroes in the end. Mm, um, yeah. Because, you know, that's, you know, the part where they really rewrote the history of what happened in the Manson murders, uh, you know, and how they saved the day, spoiler alert. Um, and people were a little offended that it was like, here we go with, you know, two white guys saving everything. I mean, personally, I think Brandy, the dog, was the real hero oh, of that situation. MVP for sure. <laughs> Loved Brandy. For sure. Uh, a lot of people upset about Brandy, feeling like she's giving Pitbulls a negative stereotype. I don't agree with that. I think she was a, a great, she was a great character. Very well trained, well behaved yeah, dog. Yeah, beautiful dog. Uh, but I didn't see Rick and Cliff as heroes. I didn't see them. I, I saw them as... Um, kind of bumbling, especially Rick, uh, guys who are definitely on their way out uh, in a c- culture and climate that was changing, too. Uh, you know, revolutionary things are going on, war. Uh, and I saw them as more of people who tripped into a situation. I guess Radman's character literally with, yeah. with the LSD. I didn't even think about that. Uh, actually tripping. But stumbled into a situation uh, and it worked with the skills that they had, uh, each one of them th- that we just were talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, made, it, it came out heroic. But I definitely didn't feel like they were depicted as, like, white saviors in the movie. I felt a lot of times, like, uh, you know, when they were kind of making fun of hippies and really down on that. I'm like, hey, the world is is turning without you guys. And, if you know, you're the ones who are going to kind of have to realize, like, you are – you know, you're culturally ignorant, and if you don't uh, open up your views, you know, you're going to be less relevant than you are now. And I do think that they both had relevancy issues. So Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, when, when I first heard about the film, and I knew about this, like, you know, when they talk about, oh, you know, it's these two guys and Sharon Tate, I kind of felt it was going to go down the glory bastard routes where they would, like, break into the, the, the Tate house and stop their murders. So I was very glad that that's not how it went down. That, like you said, it's an accident. I mean, the whole thing only happened because Rick went outside and screamed at a bunch of hippies out in the street, which when you think about it, on paper, is a bad idea. For all you know, they could have killed them right there, but they didn't. Right. The, the only reason why they end up going out to the house to attack Cliff and Rick is because it was just a fluke accident, and that's why history changes. It's not because they went out to stop something. It's just because of just some freak occurrence. They were end up being targets instead, and because the hippies are so much... What I really enjoy about the depiction of the Manson family, especially in that last sequence, is that... You did or didn't, I'm sorry. Well, sorry. What I appreciate about how they're depicted is that Tarantino takes their dignity away. They're not depicted as these great evil monsters of history. They're not like the brilliant killers. You see them as being kind of inept and bumbling in the car. You get the fact that these guys are people are dangerous, but also like we see how easily they get dispatched by Cliff. You're like, well, yeah. You know, in real life, if they if they if they had attacked people that weren't like a terrified coffee Harris and a pregnant housewife, it could have ended really badly for them. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, you know, if you if you've read anything about you know all the people that hung out with the Manson family, it was definitely a mixed bag of people. You know, there were people that liked Charlie Manson and they liked that culture for their 
their Hollywood parties and, hey, look, you know, we're meeting these weird, interesting people. But the people that followed him day by day, it was like in in many situations where, that are cultish. You know, people are kind of, you know, spoon-fed uh, to think that this person is great and they're not using their own intelligence or, you know, maybe they, you know, it's it's replacing something that they need right. in their life. It's giving them a parental figure or a a person to love and comfort them or whatever it is that they need. Yeah. Uh, a lot of logic and, and whatnot is maybe not necessarily present. So they weren't all brilliant masterminds, you know. It was very situational. I agree. And, and the thing, too, with the film is that Tarantino does a really good job of setting up why the fight goes the way it does. Like We see early on how well Cliff has trained Brandy. We see also like stuff like the we see Cliff using the I mean Rick using the the fire the fire um the fire um the flamethrower the flamethrower we see him yeah. use the flamethrower early on so it sets up later on in the film like oh you know Chekhov's flamethrower we know he has it we know he knows how to use it and right. you know, if Cliff we, we see him fight Bruce Lee in his past in the military we know the film depicts him as somebody who can handle himself very capably in a fight. So the fact that they're able, even though one of them's drunk and the other one's drunk and tripping balls. Right. And Rick's the the TV cowboy who can, uh, you know, maneuver himself in those kind of situations with those, the weapons that he's used in those sets. So they have, he has those, again, those skills, like with the flamethrower. Exactly. It's not super unbelievable that they get to drop on the the Manson family. Like the film sets it up in a way where what happens makes sense. Not to mention it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. When I, when I watched it in the theater, I, people started crying. I, I started crying when the, the flamethrower came out. Like, oh, it was, just, it was it, really it was funny. It was so absurd. It was hysterical. And what was really, I thought was really great is that there wasn't a lot of gore or violence. I mean, that was not part of like a, a filming situation, you know, movie in the movie kind of thing when Rick was on set. Um, it wasn't really Tarantino gory or violent. Until the end. I mean, there was there were moments for sure, right. but it wasn't extreme. They really saved. I thought they. I really thought they saved it for that scene, and well, it was a, more effective to me. I agree. Well, one thing I want to ask is, um, I know some people interpreted that scene as being misogynistic, considering how, how the level of violence that Cliff inflicts on the Manson family, primarily to two women. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation, but I will admit when I watched it, there were moments. I think especially where he's like smashing, I think it's Patricia's the, head yeah. over and over again to the counter, where it's it harsh. did make me go, yeah, it did make me squeamish about it. Yeah, so I kind of oh. wonder how you felt about it. I felt a little squeamish. I thought it, it, I liked that they saved that uh, to the end, and that he didn't rely on just you know a lot of violence throughout because yeah. I didn't think it needed it. It was really entertaining in so many ways. Um, yeah, that was hard to watch, you know. I mean, I felt the same way in some of those very harsh head-smashing scenes in Midsummer. Oh, yeah. You know. Uh, so just, it, yeah. I, I don't necessarily think that he meant it to be a misogynistic act. There were women present at the Manson murders. You know, a lot of the, uh, it was a lot of women that were following Charlie. Um, so I think... He was probably trying to keep it uh, real right, to yeah. live and also uh, make, you know, if you're going to rewrite that part of history and make these this this horrible murders, those were horrible murders, not happen uh, and something that we've been talking about for decades. And, 
you know, this it, infamous Manson, yeah. uh, then I think he really went out of his way to be like, fuck these people. They did this horrible thing, so I'm going to really graphically destroy them. Yeah, yeah. All of them. I like that. Uh, that's what I kind of think. I think, you know, I can see... Uh, you know, the Bruce Lee scene was also very controversial, and supposedly it's based on uh, on an, a situation that did happen on a set between a stunt person and Bruce Lee. And I don't know, and I can I can see I can see a little bit more where that scene is a little offensive um, to me. Uh, maybe it is based on a, an incident. Uh, and I don't really know. I don't know much about what Bruce Lee's character was, uh, his personal character, yeah. uh, was supposed to be like, um, and maybe he was a jerk like that, or maybe he was arrogant, but, uh, you know, for one, he was also a person working at a time period in Hollywood where it was a lot of white people. So if he was defensive or, uh, you know, maybe he had like a bravado, he probably was really just trying to keep himself to going, you know, oh, yeah, in a really, uh, you know, tough business. Um, but I think, you know, Tarantino seemed really defensive about that scene and, uh, you know, saying that he was just playing on, you know, a real sl- a real slice of life uh, situation that he knew about. But uh, I can see where he might have thought a little bit about how people would interpret that. Yeah, well, I, people are more aware of the Manson scenario. So when you take these people who commit, you know, they cut a, a baby out of yeah. a woman and did these terrible things. When they get their, you know, just desserts and get smashed, it's in flamethrower to, to death. And uh, it's easier to swallow in a way, I think, than uh, not. It's not common knowledge. Right. That Bruce, hey, Bruce Lee was a real asshole on every set, and he did this and this and this, and you're seeing him kind of get get taken down. You know, I don't, I don't think that they have the same weight. So I think he could have probably thought about being a little more sensitive with that scene. I can see that. Oh, well, does that make sense? No, it does. <laughs> I was interesting to point out the, the the difference between them because I, I feel like a lot of folks, at least on Twitter, which again it's its own parallel universe. <laughs> A lot of people took the the Manson murder scenes as almost them being the victims in that. Can we get a side note real quick? Yes. Did you have you guys seen that OJ is now on Twitter? I have, unfortunately. Okay. Hi, Twitter world. Yes, he's making a lot of videos. Oh, Hello, God. Twitter world. I'm on the Twitter. He's talking about a lot of things. Not sure how I feel about this, but anyway, yeah, it was just a side note. Oh. I brought up Twitter. <laughs> well, the reason why I bring that and up murder. is I think a lot of folks... It, uh, compared to these other films, like with uh, Bastards and Django, you don't need to set up that the Nazis are evil because we know. Right. And we know slave owners are evil, so you don't have to really give any kind of context on it. But I remember thinking, like, if you don't know who the Manson family is, I can imagine the last half hour is a little confusing. Because it does just seem like they're just picking on these two kind of, they, this group of, like, dopey, violent hippies. Right. But even Tripoli, then, uh, if you don't know who Manson is, you know, you it's something so massive, uh, you know, you might really not know who Bruce Lee is either. That's you know? true. So, And the Bruce sequence is interesting, too, because it's like, you know, in real life, you know, actors talk shit on sets. Even the most humble, nice people, like sometimes they'll they'll kind of play 
play up themselves when they're kind of just shooting the shit with, you know, like, crew backstage. So when I watch that scene, like, it, it seems convincing to me. Like, I don't know Bruce Lee well enough to make a judgment on that. But I, I don't take it necessarily as saying, hey, Bruce Lee's an arrogant jackass. I think it's more of saying, like, hey, maybe in this moment he was feeling himself a little bit because he's just killing time between shoots. and Yeah. And I'm sure that that happens all of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it almost seems like the def- and part of the problem I have with it, like the, the, the labeling of that scene is racist because it seems like almost the alternative seems racist to me as well. The idea of like you only depict Bruce as this super sage, wise, noble guy at all times. Right. That seems to me the tone, but the, the defense about it. And I'm like, but that's also kind of a stereotype. I mean, Bruce Lee is a complicated person. And yeah, you know, he was this sagacious individual but also, he was probably a hothead at times. I mean, you kind of have to be to be a Hollywood performer to right. to to have been as ambitious as he was. You don't achieve that by just being some really humble, like nice, totally chill guy, right? Just, and especially at that time, I mean, look at how yeah. things are now. At that time, you know, he was. It was a struggle for non-white actors, uh, you know, to get roles. Oh, it's interesting the way it seems structured. I know a lot of folks interpret it as a as a um, a dream sequence, not as a flashback, which is interesting because oh. to me it seems pretty clear it's a flashback. But because yeah. it starts with Cliff on the roof, like kind of like in a reverie, and then it cuts to like that that nesting doll of flashbacks, where we see him talk to Kurt Russell, we see him on the boat with his wife. It makes it create this idea that maybe this is all in his head. But I honestly, I mean, I prefer to think that it's something that actually happened because I think it hel- it, it it makes the story feels like more smoother that way to me. Right. It explains why he's on his way out, and um, you know, because of the fact that hey, he might have killed his wife, and also he punched that Bruce Lee once. Right. No one wants to work with him. Right. And then at the same time, he still seems very content with where he's at. He understands why people feel that way about him. I don't feel like he had a whole lot of questions. I liked his character because of that reason. Like right. He just seemed to really know who he was, good or bad, good and bad. Uh, and I would have not, I did not think of that sequence at all as a dream sequence. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, this is what would have happened. I would have kicked uh, Bruce Lee's ass. I felt like here's a moment that happened on this set, uh, you know, and yeah. a- another reason why, you know, I have this reputation that I have. And then he kind of just went back to working on the on the roof. And, yeah. He, he kind of nods. Like, like, fair like, enough. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what I that's who I am. That's what I did. Um Yeah, but Pitt's um it's interesting because when I, when I watch how Pitt and DiCaprio are in this film, it makes you think of how like Hitchcock used James Stewart and Cary Grant in his mm-hmm. films. Cause like DiCaprio is kind of like the Stewart character where he's like he's neurotic. He's kind of got the the wholesome all American image, but he's a little like he's little, uncomfortable with little, himself. Yeah, uncomfortable yeah. weirdo. Whereas Pitt is playing the Cary Grant character, where he's like the same cool persona in each film. And this one, just how Grant is and like notorious for suspicion, you can believe that this guy who's so genial and handsome could also be a murderer. Right. And and the thing that the film doesn't let you off the hook on that. Like we never really find out. We just see Cliff on the boat the waves rocking the bow, him holding the, the, the harpoon gun. We never figure out if it's an accident or what happened. But the way he plays that character, you can definitely see it's believable that he could be a killer and he could be remorseful about it. Or that he could be a killer and he doesn't care. Or that he's innocent. 
or that he's innocent and he he's also realizes like well you know no one knows and that's what they've kind of assigned to me in this reputation and again that's who I am okay like you said fair enough all right I'll just move on from here and I'll live in my little trailer with Brandy and you know and I'll have yeah. this this really great relationship I have this this buddy but he he understood what that relationship was too his relationship with Rick you know he knew when when with the, when they had the conversation Rick was like I'm gonna have to kind of let you yeah let you go I mean that was the crux of moving into that whole last sequence um he just seemed very realized to me and I I really appreciated that about the movie I agree I mean uh I've been saying that a lot today, but uh, but actually agrees with me. We're not we're not we're not fighting about anything. This isn't uh, like the um, the uh, with Stillman episode. No, uh, White Stillman. White Uh, Stillman. (laughs) (laughs) The great White Stillman episode. Um, I was going to say something else about that, and now I forgot. Maybe it'll come back to me. Well, there's also just the driving sequences. Like watching Cliff like leave Rick's house and go bombing through L.A. and driving all the way to his home behind the, um, the drive-in. driving theater. That sequence is just – there's such a, a sense of adrenaline. Like you feel like you're in that car hurtling forward with him. I felt like a lot of times the driving sequences I was in the car, you know, whether they were – it was, uh, you know, Sharon Tate and, and yes. know, Sebring, J.C. Bring or whatever driving to – the party or, you know, Rick and Cliff driving around and, you know, whatever song would, would play, yeah. uh, you really feel like you're there, you know? And I love that feeling because some of it, it, it was like, you know, that kind of darker moment of just like, you know, here I'm driving from the Hollywood Hills, but into this, you know, kind of ramshackle uh, little, <laughs> little trailer. trailer. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of a little bit, there's a little bit of sadness that yeah. you could probably attribute to that. Like, oh, you you're, you don't have all this. But then, you know, it's very peaceful when he's inside and it is what it is. And uh, sometimes things yeah. just are what they are. Well, also, I think, too, cause it, it adds an interesting layer where you, you're like, these guys are friends, but there's a very good chance that Rick has no idea Cliff lives in the trailer. Has probably never ever come to this part of town. Yeah, because because I'd see it right before Cliff drives over. Rick mentions like, oh, like you know, I live in you know, if you don't live in Hollywood and have a Hollywood address, you're nothing. Right. And right after he has that conversation with Rick, like Cliff, Cliff goes home to his trailer out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I think it says a lot about what people think it means having nothing, but yeah, but there is some value in uh, being content. Like I really, I don't know, I really found a lot of contentment and peace in that character. Uh, and also, uh, whether or not he killed his wife, you know, that was another uh, point of contention for a lot of people who are like, how could you like Cliff? You know, he was this wife murderer. One, we don't know that he was. And two, I mean, we all know there were a few different men on the boat with Natalie Wood, you know, and yeah. some of them have gone to have really successful careers because no one knew what exactly happened. So you kind of can't blame people for investing a little bit in cliff yeah it, it, it felt almost like an interesting me too allegory where it comes that idea of what happens if you have a friend who's like indefensible or someone who's canceled in your life like do you do you outcast them do you push them away do you kind of do what rick did and try and like keep keep them working keep them in the world even though it probably will also have negative effects in your own occupation like it's an interesting thing to consider and uh I don't necessarily think the film wants us to think Cliff is innocent 
Because I, I think there's intimations here and there that he probably is guilty. Right. And you see him, like, uh, he, while he manages through everything very smoothly, like even when he's out at Spawn Ranch, you know, and things kind of go awry there, uh, he doesn't lose his cool or whatever. But yeah. you can see that he... He can move to uh, doing whatever he whatever has to get done, even if it's a little dark or haunting, uh, effortlessly. So it makes it more plausible that this guy could actually probably have killed kill someone and just walk away. Right. Or it's like when he's in the car. Or because he killed someone, he can now be very calm in a situation like this do something violent in response to people giving right. him a hard time and then also walk away. Or it's like, if you look at that whole sequence of Spawn Ranch, like, he's, it's like, the way Tarantino films that whole sequence, it clearly is like, your character is in a horror movie right now. Any ra- rational person would, like, see, like, the, the Mansons, like, watching him go in the house and be like, nope, nope, right. I should, I, I should not be here. windows and, uh, you know, groups of people kind of coming out of this spot. Of right, this spot. it's absolutely like a Texas yeah. Chainsaw situation. Yes. But I think it says a lot of Cliff's character that he doesn't register for danger. Like, he's that, like, preternaturally assured about himself that he right. just doesn't even register that there's something. Qu- I think he's quietly uh, seeing what's going on and, uh, you know, he knows that he's going to take care of business without losing his school. Like, yeah. And that comes from somewhere, you know, and it could come from, you know, once you kill someone, maybe it, it makes it a lot easier to kill someone a second time or, uh, you know, we don't know, you know, we really don't know, but we know that he, He's effortless about all of these different things that he's doing. Where Rick is, whatever he's doing, he's still, he's kind of still fumbling through them a little bit. Right. He seemed awkward having a wife and being married. He said everything <laughs> he did, he was really just, like you said, like the Jimmy Stewart. Well, at the, at the end, where, where Cliff's like, you know, you should go take care of your wife. Like, Rick has to be told that. Right. Like, it just doesn't come, it, it doesn't come naturally for him to think, like, oh, I should probably spend time with the woman who's like completely terrified out of her mind over what happened. And in like a, some buddy movies, uh, you don't, you sort of feel, you know, they're going their separate ways a little bit, but because of moments like that, you sort of feel like um, that might not be the end of the road for them. Like Rick might, he might still need that. He needs that more than Cliff needs that. Oh, yeah. Cliff has, you know, financially uh, much less. I mean, I think the way the film ends is like, I think the implication is if it, that didn't happen, they would have gone their separate ways. But because of the incident and because Rick met the, um, the Polanskis at the end, I think it means that his career is going to have that resurgence. And right. Because his, his tide's rising, that Cliff's boat will rise too. Right. It's like, yeah, they should have been. It's like those two people probably would have gone their separate ways. But because of the fact that they both did this insane thing and like killed a bunch of crazy hippies, like they're, they're going to be even more intertwined than they were before. Was there anything you didn't like? Uh, I have two things. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, here, you go first. Lena Dunham. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I don't like her, and I think I don't think she fit in the movie. I don't think she really is a good actor, and it, she just was a sore spot in that scene. Uh, she just, it just didn't fit. I felt like it was just Lena Dunham being there, like, like you said earlier about Leo. Like, here's me, Lena Dunham. I know people like Quentin Tarantino, so... I got to be in this movie, and uh, I'm just not a fan. I'm not and either. And I don't think I really she can really not. act, and uh, she it just felt really awkward and out of place. It did. I mean, I, I'd say the one thing I liked about it was that she didn't play her character in a sinister way, which did feel like a nice contrast from everybody else at Spawn Ranch, especially um, uh, the character uh, playing Squeaky From. Yeah. 
who's played perfectly, like like they like in a very like a frightening clipped personality. Yeah. But not every person there was a, right. a frightening, terrifying person. A lot of them were, you know, like free loving hippies who liked Charlie's music and wanted right. to just hang out. Yeah. So I felt her as like kind of the more fluffy den mother, who's kind of more like, oh, I'm like the goodwill ambassador, like. I, I yeah. like that touch, but I do agree with you. Like, I just don't like her as an actress, so her popping up kind of did make me go a little bit like, oh. Uh, yeah. It kind of took it out of, like, uh, you know, when you're really just invested and you're in with all the characters, and then it's like something kind of pulls you towards reality when you yeah. just want to be in that in that situation. So I was like, eh. What was the other thing that um, put you off? I'm trying to think now. What about you? Nothing? I'm trying to think. I'm thinking. Uh, I would say the first time, like, I'm so used to, like, uh, Tarantino's use pl- uh, needle drops and his use of music that I walked the theater, I, I couldn't figure out a, a single moment in the film, like, oh, that song was perfectly placed. But I watched it the second time, I saw, like, oh, he's going for, like, an audio tapestry, where it's almost like a radio play, where all the sounds and commercials bleed into each other, create, like, this sonic tapestry of what that year was like. And that time, when I watched it the second time through, I'm like, okay, now I get what he's doing. Yeah. And certain cues like the like the, the Rolling Stones out of time, that those really hit me in a way that didn't hit me the first time I watched it. Yeah, those. there were a couple of things. The Neil Diamond song, like uh, you know, while driving, I thought uh, just you know, I felt like I was just driving through like Hollywood Hills and Laurel Canyon or something. Oh, with, yeah. like uh with a lot of with anything's possible. You know, that song felt really big and just that dusky time of day. And yeah. uh, there was also a moment in one of the indoor scenes with uh, they were playing the vanilla fudge version of You Keep Me Hanging On. And yeah. that, that song is just so perfect and dark. Like, I, it's so sludgy and like it makes anything extra intense, you know, especially if you know the original too and it's, it just doesn't feel that thick. And, yeah. It's wonderful, and it, it doesn't do that Forrest Gump thing where the cues are too obvious. Like, there's some bigger songs in there, but nothing in it screams like, you are in the late 60s. Right. Yeah, it was. It flowed really smoothly, and it could kind of, like, move your mood a little bit, but, uh, yeah, not yeah. not blow you over, but, yeah, I'm in this mood. Uh, what was the other thing? Because I saw you had the aha face. I did. <laughs> I forgot again. Oh, uh, I thought there were just some underused characters, you know, uh, some people I really like. And, you know, they just uh, – Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. Uh, Michael Madsen, who I love. Uh, Luke Perry, you know, that was great to see him. And it was really interesting to hear the whole theater uh, go, ah, when Luke Perry walked on screen. Like, people are really impacted by losing Dylan Walsh, you know. And yeah. I, I feel really bummed for him because uh, – I think that would this would have probably launched him back into, uh, you know, I mean, he's doing Riverdale and then yeah. you know, doing this movie probably would have really been a, a nice, like, upward trajectory for his career. Uh, but, yeah, just a little bit of, like, uh, some of those great people. Timothy Oliphant. Oh, you I know, love that, those sequences with him. Yeah, yeah so they well were great. I, and I thought, oh, you know, you, there's so much time in this movie and maybe a few people are under underutilized a little bit. Um, but that's nothing terrible, you know. I liked the uh, – I really like when he just goes hard on the dialogue. I love that there are, you know, like the moment when Rick is on the roof, we're seeing everything build and you're seeing – I love that he shows what's happening 
simultaneously in what you know in whatever worlds those yeah. people belong to and then it all culminates somewhere like i love death proof because i love that opening part before they get in the car and they do any of the racing chasing or anything i love that long ass conversation that they're having just sitting around and drinking and and you think it's every time you think it's going to end it doesn't end but you're still Let's keep this going. I'll sit and listen to you talk all night long. Right, like I exactly. love that. Um, and I know a lot of people feel like it's kind of frivolous, but that's what he does. And that's I, that's why I think he is really strong. Like I don't mind when people say his movies are going to be really long because I'm hoping that there's going to be a lot of that conversation. I love it. I love dialogue heavy when you know when it just kind of shows like you could just it's just weaving but it always comes back he's he's great at like you know what they say like coming back and story kissing itself on the ass or whatever right. yeah. yeah he masters that all the time but yeah i lo- i thought it moved and it moved a second time when i saw it so i oh, didn't yeah. feel like oh i heard all this talk before you know i was i was interested in hearing it again. It's definitely one of those long films where you're like, I wish it was longer. Like, I, I wish I could be in this world that's a little mm-hmm. bit longer. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where they go to uh, the Playboy Manor. Like if they, if that was like a longer sequence, I would have loved it. Just because stuff like, like seeing Steve McQueen like reflecting <laughs> on the, the, the Tate triangle was fascinating. But also too, there's other like subtle things that he does. Like how he, he mirrors dialogue where you have Steve McQueen go, I never had a chance. I mean, later right. on, you have Rick say that about the role that Steve McQueen took from him. Right. Almost word for word the same. Yeah, that was an interesting little yeah. segment. So he has these interesting moments where he parallels characters, their dialogue, or gives them parallel moments where, you know, you have Rick has this moment of acting triumph, you know, at the set. And around the time he's having this acting moment triumph, like we also have see Sharon in the theater watching The Wrecking Crew. And right. her like glowing because the audience are like are like freaking out over her jokes or her like winning a fight on screen. And she didn't have. I, I thought you know she was going to have a little more screen time, but I thought the what she did was important. You know, I really felt, you know, I mean, she was just so bouncy and happy, and like watching her watch, you know, like watch herself and and getting that response you know it's one of those moments in something where you're like here's watching someone you know watch their own dreams come true and it feels good and you feel good for them i felt good for her yeah it's interesting it was like almost like watching one of those like uh fr- like french uh new wave films like a anna karenna figure because she has that that grace and that bu- beauty and the bubbliness but the difference is she doesn't have the tragic ending those characters have and she's not a femme fatale she's just like this it's cliche to say it, but she's like a spirit of wholesome goodness in the world of the film. Like, right. she's generous, she's thoughtful, everybody, she comes in contact with likes her, she picks up like random uh, hitchhikers on the road. Right, she's just chatting with people. There's an innocence there that you might not feel anywhere else in the movie, and it's kind of a nice little thread. And then the way he made it end is that, you know, she still gets to keep that optimism. So right. it, it ends gruesomely, but it also does end uh, with some hope too, right? And it also gives Rick that uh, moment benediction too, where it's like you know they they the you know the the gate that's keeping him out of New Hollywood finally opens and he right. gets invited in. So yeah. you, even though like Literally, he's like this washout, yeah. like now it's like now he's got a new lease on life in so many different ways, right? And then like you said, you know we we can take the assumption that maybe that's also going to be somehow life changing for Cliff too. Oh yeah, but yeah, it's in, I mean I, I really do think like. I don't know if it's going to be the best film this year, but it's my favorite so far. Wow. Did you see Midsummer? 
I, I did like Midsommar a lot, but Midsommar is a film I don't imagine I'm coming back to very often. To me, it's almost like Killing of a Sacred Deer. They're both films I respect, yeah. and like their artistry is very powerful. And like I'm like I'm glad I saw them, but I just don't imagine I'll rewatch them very often. Yeah, I would like to see it a second time. I yeah. like to see the director's cut. I think and see how that differs. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. And then there's a, like a certain amount of additional footage. Uh, but once upon a time, it, it, to me, it's like one of those records you want to replay over and over again. I could see myself coming back to that and finding new things in it, and. And I guess it's not because it's a super happy film, but it does have an optimistic ending. Whereas Midsummer, it's like it ends well for one character, kind of maybe. I don't know how you take how you interpret that ending. I guess things end end well for her. Yeah, no, and I'm not comparing them in that way. No, I know. You know, I think like with Tarantino movies, they're they're the kind of thing you can find on cable and you can jump in at any point. And uh, you know, I mean. Pulp Fiction's on, you jump in, and you're like, oh, check out the big brains on Brad, you know, and then you're like, I'm in for a few minutes here until I have to go to work or whatever, uh, and, and you could do that with any of his movies, I think, whereas Midsummer's not a, you see it, and you're like, mm, am I in the mood for this right now? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to watch that. Uh, Should I t- still take my trip to Sweden? Hmm, think about this. <laughs> yeah. But as far as, like, uh, thinking of my year list, I mean, yeah. Uh, I think it's that was pretty spectacular. But oh, fantastic! It's interesting too because it's like I feel it's an interesting companion piece of Jackie Brown because that film's so much about the anxieties of old age right. of like feeling like you're irrelevant or like you know, like this is your last chance to make something of yourself. Where I feel like Once Upon a Time is like the precipice of that. Like it's not quite there yet, but you do have characters who are like you know in 10, 15 years they will end up like Jackie or Lewis in you know in uh, Jackie Brown like during the and during the veg entering that twilight. I'm not sure how to deal with it. And also, let's just give a nod to character Max Cherry, Robert Forrester, oh, yeah. uh, who I just love like more than life itself. So he's part of the reason I like. I I'll watch him in anything. He's he's on my list of people. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I do. I love that movie so much. And plus, De Niro, like he, he doesn't get singled out a lot for that movie, but to me, it's one, it's one of my favorite performances by him. Oh, because yeah. Lewis is such a sad sack, like. It's almost like an, a, 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 a pencil outline of a human being. Like, there's just, like, nothing left in that guy. He's just this really sad, confused, like, bump on a log. Yep. And for Tarantino, for uh, De Niro, who's this very charismatic, forceful actor, to play the character that's so, like, you know, play this character who's, like, only at 10% all the time. And, like, it's very affecting and a very powerful performance. And for me, I think the whole movie is about just relevancy. I think of course. That that's the main theme. but. Well, since we talked about uh, Tarantino films that we like, wh- is there a film that he's made that, that kind of just doesn't grab you? Well, or do you like struggle I said, with? Hateful Eight, uh, eh, I probably wouldn't go back and watch it a whole bunch of times. Um, I don't have any re- anything that he's done that really disappointed me. No? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I rarely watch Reservoir Dogs. I like it. It's one of the films I respect it, but I think... I don't know. It doesn't hold up as good over time. I, I think Pulp Fiction holds up better oh, over time yes. than, than Reservoir Dogs does. Absolutely. Um, it's definitely got a little bit of that. It's flashy. You know, it's got the style. Um, and maybe it's sort of, you know, obviously helped establish an idea of him uh, and his style of just, you know, yeah. multiple characters and, uh, you know, heavy dialogue and... Uh, winding tale a little bit, but uh, you know, not to the extreme that he went on to do. But 
Yeah, it's okay, but I'm with you on that. I can agree with you on that. I don't, I don't watch it, but I still will sit and, and watch Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah, I love Pulp. On. I kind of feel like m- my problem with Reservoir is the same problem I have with Hateful Eight is that they're very claustrophobic films. They're mostly chamber pieces confined to just a couple of areas. Whereas I like Tarantino for the fact that his stories sprawl and there are multiple characters and storylines that interweave together and they go different places. And so I still respect Hateful Eight and I still like um, Reservoir Dogs. But because they're kind of all stuck in one area, like it just doesn't move me to the degree where like something like Django, for example. Right. Where I want I rewatch that film all the time because there's certain segments that I love, like the scene where it's um, the montage where it's just um, Christoph Waltz and Jamie Foxx like uh, hunting for the oh, winter. Oh, yeah. Like those sequences are just I come to it again and again because they're beautiful and they're just moving and there's nothing in Reservoir Dogs that has that same effect on me. No, they feel like a they're claustrophobic. They feel like a, a stage play. Yes, that you absolutely. that you can't get away from. Yes, yes, whereas some people can take a stage play like Mammoth, like if you took a Spanish Prisoner or something, uh, and it's you know I mean it, I think it was a play and yeah. he writes in it you know obviously. A, you know, theatrical style, but it moves, it has more motion and it moves yeah. around and it takes you a, a little bit here and there and you don't feel so trapped, even though you're molded to, you know, how is this going to go? Like, how is this going to turn out? But with Reservoir Dogs, you're just, yeah, it's just yeah. tense. I think Death Proof too. I like Death Proof. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I like it a lot, but I, I always think of it paired with uh, Planet Terror because I saw it. I saw it as a Grindhouse originally. Yeah, me too. And I hated Planet Terror. I didn't like Planet Terror either. It kind of so it kind of colors Death Proof for me a little bit. Yeah. But it's not fair because Death Proof to me is everything Planet Terror wasn't. Where it's like it's an exploitation film that's thoughtful and generally subversive and well done. Where Planet Terror is just like, <laughs> blood and guts. Fergie, let's kill a kid. Like, it just feels like, it, it just feels insubstantial. Yeah. It felt like someone wanted to make a, like a B, you know, just we're going to yeah. make a, we're, I'm going to make my own classic B horror flick and do all the, you know, just make it over the top, as over the top as possible. And then it just seemed like it was all about that technique rather than, it just didn't feel like it had any substance. And you can do that kind of thing with substance. People have, oh, plenty yeah. of people have done it. Uh, so, yeah, I but I did. I felt like Death Proof was a relief after watching that, and also like revisiting it. I never went back. I've never gone back one time and watched Planet Terror. Yeah, I mean, not to get on a, a huge tangent, but um, Robert <laughs> Rodriguez, man. I mean, if, if I had to pick one director, I'm like he squeezed a lot of juice out of a tiny <laughs> fruit. It's that guy, <laughs> yeah. because his films don't like. Like, I like El Mariachi well enough. I, the Faculty is probably the one re- film by him where I'm like, I unabashedly, like, dig this movie. I like The Faculty. I like the idea of yeah. it. And I, I fi- could watch that again. But Yeah, it's like a fun, it's a fun little, like, 90s horror film. But everything else, like, I have just no desire to revisit it. Like, yeah. I, I don't like his, his El Mariachi. I don't like the other El Mariachi, Desperado, uh, Once Upon in Mexico, the Spy Kid films. It's all, it's all garbage I'm to not me. having a Robert Rodriguez night, no. you know. No. Uh, I just don't get it. Like, I, it, to me, it's like it's like he inherits Tarantino's love of B movies, but he, there's no there's no artistry there or nothing unique to say of that format. No, but you at least feel with Tarantino how much he loves that. Oh, I mean, of it's it's beyond you know, it, but the, it still has substance. He's got the style, but he's he you know, and like I said early on, like Reservoir Dogs, very stylish. 
but he really started packing the substance in uh, and and you could see it grow over time and then you end up with something like once upon a time and uh, you know there's a lot it's the characters are you know have a lot of substance and you can really understand them and their complexities and uh, I just don't think Rodriguez yeah. evolved so deeply. It's like you look at Kill Bill films. Like you start off with this this movie. Oh, it's gosh. just full of incredible like kung fu fights and like ninja sword fights. And the sequel, I mean, the follow up is like one of the most emotionally harrowing films he's ever made. It's a brilliant. You know, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Kill Bill two at That's the top. Really good my pick. number one. The relationship between her and Bill, the relationship with everyone she goes and visits and, and you know, connects with and the the church scenes. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. There's so many nice moments. Like, like, or, like, I, love, I love the irony that the one person who feels guilty about what they did to her, Bud, is also yeah. the only person who almost kills her. Right. And there are these little touches in that in a film like that I think are really clever and this that, that reward repeat viewings. Yeah, it's a, such an emotional movie and so intense. And so well done. And also sometimes nicely sparse, you know. Yeah. For as much as I like him when he, get, you know, he just talks and talks and talks. I like when he understands how to be quiet. And there are nice quiet moments in yeah, that movie. Yeah, there really is. That just, uh, just slay you. And I love how at the end when he, she finally does meet Bill, it's mostly just a series of conversations. Yeah. Which is, which is really nice. Yeah, no, it's, you know, and you got the kid dynamic. I mean, there's just, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm going with that as my number one. In the end, I can't Kill really Bill, argue with that. that. That's really good. I'll go Bastards my one, but I think your you're, uh, you're, you're one might be better than mine. I'll go Bastards 2. All right. Bastards 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> All right, folks, we yeah. are getting from our producer extraordinaire, Mark, is giving us the uh, two-minute warning. Mark, did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet? No. No, okay. Well, oh, then. we have spoiled the entire movie for Mark. <laughs> You're welcome, Mark. Yeah, so <laughs> we don't know who we're going to be talking about on our next episode, <laughs> but it will be someone uh, that we have something to say about. Uh, hopefully. As usual, yeah, Hopefully. Uh, what else do we have going on? Anything coming up? We uh, may hopefully be resuming our monthly trivia in Phoenix uh, sometime this fall. We're looking right. to get We took back a hiatus because it's just too hot out to do anything and nobody wants to leave the home. Yeah. All, yeah. The only trivia questions you can ask are about how hot it is outside. And uh, Do I have skin cancer? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but we, we, uh, stay tuned on uh, Prime Fighting Kangaroo on Twitter as, you know, PFXPHX. And also on our Facebook page, where we will be uh, updating us with events and more info about the podcast. That's right, folks. P- Wait, is it P- PFK PHX. Uh, sorry, I- I'm still a little bit stoned from this morning, folks. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah, and I also wanted to ask Ashley real quick, since we started out earlier talking about D&D, and I don't think we were doing it on the show, but we were talking about D&D. Yo. Have you ever seen the movie, uh, either came out in the late 70s or early 80s, it's called Mazes and, Mazes and Monsters? Yes, I have. Yes, Starring I have. Tom Hanks, <laughs> comma, no thanks, uh, as, a, as a college kid who gets sucked into the game. Yeah. I think if you're a role player of a certain age, you're required by law to watch Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it, it happens. So anyway, I think you could probably find that on your Prime or something if you're interested in seeing Tom Hanks get not Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> but Mazes and Monsters. 
And I guess we'll probably just go out. That's right. With that. If you want to read more about what we do, check out uh, Amy and I's work on Echo Magazines and the Phoenix New Times, another fine print publication yep. in the and Valley. Don't forget to uh, go to Yab Yum. That's right. Yabbers.com. The yummers. That's right. Yabby and yummy. They are delicious. Also, be careful uh, Googling, searching that at work because you might get results <laughs> that are not uh, music and arts friendly. They still might be delicious, though. hey <laughs> All right, everybody. I'm Bye. Ashley. And I'm Amy. Peace. You're watching Prize Fighting Kangaroo, a really? podcast. <laughs> That's good. Are they really watching it? <laughs> ah, I'm still high. Damn it. This is going to be interesting. All right. Maybe I'll, I'll just roll with whatever you say at this point then. I was like, he's like, you're watching. And I'm Very like, special no, dog cast. no, they're not. <laughs> all right. All right. You're watching. Take two.